Um, we all affirm that. If you're a believer here today, you affirm that with your lips. And you would say that, I know that, I know that's true, I believe that, but I do think that to, to have that sink in deep down and actually shape the way we live, the way we think, the way we act is um, something we're all growing in and is one of the great challenges of the Christian life. There is, a, there is an element of, I just can't believe this in some ways. Um, and so as we study God's word, we want to seek to grow in our recognition of God's love for us expressed through Christ and to deepen our belief uh, and our understanding of that. And even our study in Exodus um, helps with that and points us forward to to the the final Passover lamb who shed his blood for us. Uh, You can open up to Exodus 23 this morning. Before we get to our text, I do want to make one announcement. I forgot to make this announcement last week, and I was supposed to. Uh, A lot of you know, and some of you know, that we have been uh, searching for an associate pastor um, for a number of months now, and we wanted to let you know that we have uh, a guy um, named Trevor Hogue, Uh, who lives out in Kansas City, who we have been talking to. We've had our elders interview him. We had another group of folks interview him. I've talked to him many, many times over Zoom, Uh, even had the chance to visit with him. Uh, Danny and Emily Knoll had a chance to visit with him when they were out visiting family in Kansas City. And uh, everyone that has interacted with Trevor has just loved our time with him. Um, He is on the same page as our church regarding philosophy of ministry and uh, doctrine and all of that, and so we are very excited about him uh, and his wife Maria. And they're going to be coming here to visit uh, at the end of September. He'll be preaching September 26th, and they will be here that weekend uh, as a candidating trip so that we can uh, introduce them to our church and so that you all can meet them uh, and hear him open God's word and interact with them some. And so we are thrilled uh, about them, And we'll be passing along some more information about that weekend and how you can interact with them some. Uh, But you can pray for that time. Uh, Like us, they want God's purposes and will to be done, and we certainly do. And so you can pray for clarity and for uh, direction uh, and for God to uh, just make everything as abundantly clear as possible regarding their visit and the potential of having them come on as the uh, associate pastor here at WBC. So pray for that. And we'll give you more details as that gets a little bit closer. Exodus 23, that's where we're going to be this morning, 23 and 24. I want you to think for a moment this morning about the difference between a consumer relationship and a covenant relationship. There's a big difference between those two types of relationship. In a consumer relationship, the individual's needs are placed ahead of the relationship. Now, that's not bad in every context. Those of you that are business owners, you know that there is a place for a consumer relationship, and it doesn't work very well if you don't have certain consumer relationships. As a consumer, I have lots of consumer relationships. When I hire someone to install a fence at my house, I am going to find a combination of the best price and the best quality install, and the person or the company that is doing that installation is going to look to maximize their profits, and there's nothing wrong with that sort of relationship happening. I'm under no obligation in a consumer relationship to stick with a business if my needs or wants as a consumer are not being fulfilled. 
Now, it's fine to have a consumer relationship in the right context, but there is an entirely different sort of relationship that we have when we talk about a covenant relationship. In a covenant relationship, you could say the opposite is true. The good of the relationship is placed above the particular momentary needs or wants of the individual. A covenant is a lasting commitment to another person that is binding. It ties those two people together. Each party in a covenant relationship may at times avoid certain actions or perform certain actions in order to uphold that covenant and to maintain it. Oftentimes in a covenant relationship, temporary momentary desires are put on the back burner in order to uphold and keep the health of that covenant. Now, unfortunately, well, fortunately in some ways, but unfortunately in others, we live in a society where we, are, we have lots of consumer relationships. And the danger in that is that we can start to think of every relationship as a consumer relationship. That can bleed over into how we view what should be viewed as covenant relationships. And so what is best for me in this relationship is put ahead of what is best for the relationship and the other person. So instead of treating a covenant relationship as a covenant relationship, now it becomes a consumer relationship. Now you may be sitting there thinking, well, the way you are describing a covenant sounds really harsh and joyless in a lot of ways. It's sort of this legalistic binding obligation that you just have to grit your teeth and stick it out and make it happen for the good of the relationship. And it doesn't really support and help the individual. You may be thinking a covenant relationship doesn't sound very loving or very life-giving. And here's the thing about a covenant relationship. The binding commitment that you make actually provides the framework for true love and life to grow. It's the commitment that gives the opportunity for true love to grow, and you don't ever have that in a consumer relationship. The pledge of the covenant acts like a trellis that supports the vine growth of true love. Now, the Bible's filled with covenant commitments. I mean, we've been talking about the book of the covenant here, but the Bible's filled with many other types of covenant commitments. Obviously, the one that most comes to mind is marriage. Early on in Genesis, marriage is defined as a covenant between a man and a woman, two people. And there's a lot more we could say about how necessary it is for you to treat marriage as a covenant relationship and not as a consumer relationship but we're not here to talk about marriage as a covenant this morning. But we are here to talk about God's covenant with Israel. And I wanted you to understand the difference and help to define what it means to be in a covenant relationship. And we're going to think about God's covenant relationship with Israel. And then, based on that, we're going to move forward and talk about our new covenant relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ that he purchased for us. So Exodus 23 and verse 20 this morning, and we're going to finish this section called the Book of the Covenant. Began in Exodus 19, goes all the way to Exodus 24 and verse 11, and then we move into something different next week. 
But here's what's been happening, all right? God has rescued Israel from Egypt, brought them through the wilderness into uh, the, the Sinai wilderness to Mount Sinai, and he's done this in order to establish a personal covenant relationship with them. That whole background that we've been talking about of covenant is there in this relationship. And so God wants to make Israel into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. They are going to be his representatives as his children, as his people. And so he affirms that in chapter 19, gives them the purpose in verses 3 through 6. And then he shows up on Mount Sinai in an amazing way, a terrifying way, and he gives them the heart of the covenant. And this is in chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23. He gives them the 10 words, remember this, and then the rules. The words and the rules in chapters 20 to 23, and this makes up the heart of Israel's obligations within this covenant. These are the vows that Israel is supposed to make, the commitments the pledges that they are supposed to make to God in order to be a faithful covenant partner in this relationship. And now, at the end of chapter 23 and then into chapter 24, we find the last two sort of pieces of this covenant. And it brings all of this together for us. And here's what we're going to study this morning, all right? Two vital pieces of a covenant that strengthen our commitment to it. And so these are true of Israel here, but then we're going to move forward and talk about us and our covenant relationship with Christ at the end this morning. So two vital pieces of every covenant that strengthen our understanding and our commitment to the covenant that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one of these is every covenant has a promise or promises. If you think about a marriage covenant ceremony, what is the centerpiece of the ceremony? What is everyone there to witness? the vows, the promises. It's the part of the ceremony where the couple getting married actually commit to one another with vows and they promise certain things to each other. I will do this. I will love you for the rest of my life. I will do these actions. Now, Israel's responsibility, their vows, if you think of it that way, are spelled out in the words and the rules. This is what God wants them to do. Now, at the end of chapter 23, we're going to hear God's vows in a lot of ways. God is going to promise to Israel to do certain things for them. Now, keep in mind here, this covenant is not just a list of legal demands for Israel. It's easy to think of it that way if you think of it in terms of law, and it is law. But it's not just a list of legal demands. This is a personal relationship. It's a covenant relationship, a family relationship between God and between his people. And so God requires certain ways of living for Israel. And now he says, I will make vows or I will make promises to you. Now, as God makes these promises in verses 20 to 33 of chapter 23, I do want you to notice that he mixes in Israel's responsibilities to him. He summarizes them in a particular way throughout this passage. And I want to show you that before we get to God's promises. So look at verse 22, chapter 23. He says, But 
if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. Now look at verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Look at verse 25, the first part of it there. You shall serve the Lord your God. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest you make lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so if you put all of these together, these obligations that Israel has here, they, they can be summarized by saying that Israel is to be exclusively loyal to God. They are to serve only him. They are to be fully and completely devoted to him. And the way God summarizes their responsibility in these verses is just a, essentially a shorthand way of summarizing all of chapters 20 through 23. All of these details in the rules and the words, you could say, just love God exclusively, be loyal to him, and don't worship other gods. That's Israel's ultimate responsibility in this. Okay, so what does God promise that he will commit to Israel? What will he do for them if they will be faithful in obedience to him? Four basic promises that God makes to Israel. First, he promises that he will be with them, that his presence will go with them as they travel. Look at verses 20 and 21. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Now, there's some question here, probably in your mind, as you read this, who exactly or what exactly is this angel? Well, the word that is translated angel here simply means messenger in the Old Testament. So I'm not inclined to believe that this is some sort of pre-incarnate Christ. But I am inclined to believe that this is some representation of God's presence with Israel. Think about Moses at the burning bush. Think about what the Israelites are going to experience later in our passage this morning. This is some sort of divine manifestation of God's presence with his people. The point here is that this is God saying, I'm going to go with you. I will be with you. Now, obviously, this is huge. I mean, they want God to be with them, and that's one of the major problems Moses has later on when God says, I'm not going to go with you. Moses is like, well, what's even the point if you're not going to be with us? This is what makes Israel unique, and this is what gives them security, is God's presence with them. And so God promises, I will be with you as my part of this covenant. Second, God promises them victory. He promises to win the battle through them and for them. Look at verses 22 to 24. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. And my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow, and break, overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. 
Now, God lists some specific nations here, six of them. These are not the only nations or people groups that Israel is going to fight against in the future, but they are representative of the Canaanites and others that Israel will fight. And the point here is that God is going to win the victory for them. God is going to blot these nations out as Israel is obedient to him and fulfills their part of the covenant. Remember what God told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 about these other nations. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And the point here is that God is going to judge these nations for their sinfulness. Israel coming into the land and Taking them out is God judging these nations for their sinfulness. And these nations had been established in the land of Canaan for a long time. They had walled cities and strong armies. And so there is every natural inclination for Israel to be intimidated by going into this land and fighting against them. And God promises here, as his part of the covenant, that he is going to win a great victory over them. Third, God promises to bless the Israelites in a particular way. Look at verses 25 and 26. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now, if you think about the promises here, And then you think about the curses that God lays down in Genesis 3. Those curses had to do with finding food as you cultivate the land and about women getting pregnant and the difficulty of that and miscarriage. And God says here essentially to Israel, in many ways, I will undo the impact of the fall and of the curse that I laid down in Genesis for you. Now, he's not promising here for them to never get sick and to never die, but I think what God is promising here is that things will go exceptionally well for Israel, and as they properly represent him, it will be a little bit like the Garden of Eden. It will hearken back to those days, and it will show the nations what God's original plan for creation was to be. And God promises that he will do this for Israel as they obey his word and as they maintain their exclusive loyalty to him. Fourth, the final promise that God gives is he promises that he will give them the land that he has promised to the patriarchs. Look at verses 27 to 31. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, 
For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. God is going to give Israel this land that he originally promised to Abraham, and he will do it not all at once, but in his timing and in his way in order to properly bless Israel and allow them to take possession of it in the best possible way. So all of these promises and these vows from God and commitment to Israel, but all of these things will come to them only if they will fulfill their part of the covenant. Verses 32 and 33. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Notice how he ends that there. It says that worshiping these other gods is a snare to you. This is what will happen to Israel if they don't maintain exclusive loyalty to God. If they pursue other gods, if they do what the nations around them do, and they worship Baal and all of these other Canaanite gods, it's going to end up being a snare. The picture here is of a wooden trap that a bird gets caught in. And that's exactly how God sees idol worship for Israel. This is certainly prophetic, isn't it? If you read Psalm 106, where the psalmist is looking back on Israel's exile from the land and what brought that about, here's what he has to say. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Now, how did they become a snare to them? Well, it was devastating. Look what they now believed they had to do in order to worship these other gods and to have the the land bring forth uh, food for them, the land of Canaan. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus, they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. These false gods are not neutral. They are not there for your good or for your benefit. They are a snare and they are looking to cause great harm in your life. And that's what God is telling Israel here. Now, God made all of these promises to Israel and Israel certainly knew them up front, right? He makes this quite clear to them up front. They knew their responsibilities. They knew what their vows and their obligations were. And in the Old Testament, God is incredibly patient. He is slow to anger. He has made it clear at the very beginning what they are to do, and he has made it clear that he will bless them and do them good, and he is patient and slow to anger, and he is gracious in his dealings with them over the centuries. I mean, something like this helps to put the whole Old Testament in context, doesn't it? And when you read this and you see how God is so kind and so clear up front, it helps to put his patience and his forbearance in context for centuries of Israel going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Here's what I want you to take away from this. Kind of the main lesson of this. A covenant relationship involves promises. It involves promises. Now, these promises here are of a conditional nature for Israel. 
The promises of Mount Sinai are conditional as the covenant between God and Israel. Keep that in mind. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is our our second part here this morning, our second vital piece of a covenant, is that promises are always for a purpose. There is an end game to this. It's not just that they keep their vows and God keeps his vows and they enter into the land. There's a higher purpose for all of this, and every covenant has a higher purpose that God is moving it toward. Now in chapter 24, we get to the the, uh, the official ratification of the covenant here. The major obligations have been laid out, right? Israel has theirs. God has given his promises. Now this becomes official. It's like the exchanging of the rings here. And there's a ceremony that speaks to the seriousness of this covenant and moves us toward the main purpose for Israel and for God. Why enter into this covenant? Why is God doing this? What's he hoping to accomplish here? Let me show you that in this official ratification ceremony. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And so what God does here is given all the obligations, the vows, the promises, and now he calls a group of 74 Israelites to come up the mountain at least part way, and they are to come up as representatives of the entire nation of Israel. They are representing Israel as this covenant is sealed and is finalized. And to officially seal the covenant that God is making with them, Moses reminds the people of what they are committing to. Again, it's abundantly clear here. And he reminds them of what God is promising. Look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now the people have already committed to this. Even before they got the words and the rules back in chapter 19, they said, man, we want to be God's special chosen people, and so we'll do whatever God is asking of us. Now they verbalize that same promise again. Yes, we hear, it's clear, we will obey. And Moses writes all of this down, not just for this generation of Israelites, but for future generations, because they are a part of this covenant as well. Look at verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this is the official ratification part. Now, every covenant has two parties in it, and those two parties come together in an agreement. And so what Moses does here is builds an altar, which is God's representative of God and his part of the covenant, And then he builds 12 pillars, which obviously represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the whole nation here. And so God is one party, the ruler, the king, and the 12 pillars represent Israel as the other party. And what happens after this? Animals are sacrificed to show that atonement has been made and that these two parties are coming together. Look at verses 5 and 6, 5 through 8. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. 
And notice what Moses does here. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins or bowls, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words." And so you'll see here that the animals are sacrificed. Blood is thrown on the altar, representing God's portion of this covenant. And blood is thrown on the people in verse 8, representing their portion. Now notice in verse 8, it says that this is the blood of the covenant. Now you know from other passages of Scripture that without the shedding of blood, There's no forgiveness of sins. And so the blood here provides atonement. What is atonement? Atonement is the means by which two parties, oftentimes at enmity with one another, but two parties are brought together and are reconciled and are put at peace with one another. Atonement covers or hides the cause of the breach between the two parties. In this case, Israel's sin and uncleanness. And so atonement brings about reconciliation when the penalty for the breach is not charged against this one party, the offending party, but is brought down on these animals. They are a sacrifice, and their blood shows that the sacrifice has been made The atonement has been made, the sin is covered, and now the two parties can come together in agreement. Now, that whole ceremony, the atonement, the blood, the reading of the covenant, the commitment of Israel, all of it is for this purpose that is laid out in verses 9 through 11. This is the main purpose of the whole thing. Verse 9, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness, and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, we know from later in the book of Exodus that no one can see God's face and live. Exodus 33, 34 That's described to us. So what happens here? Well, these 74 people representing Israel did not see God in all his glory, in his fullness, face to face. Instead, you can see it describes them seeing something under his feet. It's sort of like they they saw a representative of God, something that was under him. And even what was under him was so beautiful and so glorious to them. But the whole point of this description here is that the representatives of Israel were now invited into the presence of God to share in a meal of fellowship with him. This is not possible before this covenant has been made. And this is the whole purpose of the covenant that God makes with Israel. This meal is temporary. They eat and they drink And then they head back down the mountain. This is a one-time thing. This meal is temporary. But over the course of the next few chapters, as we'll get into next week, God now arranges the building of what? The tabernacle. 
And he arranges the building of the tabernacle because his presence at the end of the book of Exodus will come and will dwell in the middle of the camp of the nation of Israel as they go through the wilderness. And he will be present among them so that they can know him and so that he can bless them. The Israelites will dwell in close proximity to God through this covenant. They'll come to know him and God establishes a unique relationship with them. And that's the whole purpose here of this covenant. It ends and culminates here with a meal of fellowship and the Israelites being drawn into the presence of God. All right, now let's make the jump forward here. All of this explanation of the promise and the purpose of this covenant with Israel, let's make the jump forward to you and I. We've talked about two major pieces of this covenant, the promise and the purpose of the covenant. Now, in a similar way, we have a covenant with God, the new covenant, where God has made certain promises for a particular purpose for us. He has made promises to us, and those promises are for a particular purpose. And there are some similarities between this old covenant and the new covenant, but there are also radical differences. And so I wanted to paint this covenant in the proper context, in the proper light, and now let's see what some of the differences are as you come forward and recognize what God has done for you and for me through the Lord Jesus Christ in the new covenant. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. This is why you have to study the Old Testament. Hebrews 8, and you can camp there because we're going to be here for a few minutes. Hebrews 8. Look at verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Better promises? Well, the promises of the old covenant sounded pretty good, right? God's presence with them in the tabernacle. No sickness. People won't miscarry. They'll get the land and they'll get to live out their days in relative peace. Those sounded like pretty good promises for Israel. What are these better promises that Jesus mediates as part of the new covenant? Well, the glory of the new covenant is described right after this, as Jeremiah is quoted in verses 8 through 12. Look down there. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them, the old covenant, when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. That was the issue. They had to obey to receive those promises, and they didn't, they couldn't. 
And so, verse 9, I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We talked about this last week, but one of the greatest glories of the new covenant is the forgiveness of sins that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ and the new heart that we have received. Israel could not keep her covenant obligations because she had a stubborn and rebellious heart. But God, by his astounding grace, has given us in the new covenant a new heart. We are a new creation. Everything has changed, and that has happened through the forgiveness of sins. What other promises are given through the new covenant? Look at Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. I was going to go all over the New Testament for some of these promises, and then I realized there's tons of them right here in Hebrews. So let's just stick to these few chapters, and then you can go later and find all the other New Covenant promises. But look at this, chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Forgiveness of sins and then righteousness, a righteous standing in God's eyes through the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfected. I know you are not perfect in your daily life right now as I am not either. But God, when he looks at you, sees that you are in Christ and in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been made perfect. We're standing before the Father with Christ right now. You've been freed from your sins and God views you now as righteous and you have the righteousness of Christ. Go back to Hebrews 9 and verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The hope of eternal life with God. The promise of his presence forever. Eternal inheritance That's a new covenant promise that you and I have that we can cling to. Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What's a new covenant promise? He's coming back to get us. As we wait for him, he's coming back so that we can be fully and finally in his presence forever. 
Now, maybe my favorite new covenant promise here is in Hebrews 10, and we'll end with this, verse 19. Israel had a mediated access or had mediated access to God's presence through the tabernacle and through all of the laws and the sacrifices that they had to perform in order to come into his presence. But our experience is completely different because of the new covenant work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, therefore, so based on all that we've talked about, probably going back the entire book, but certainly chapters 8, 9, and 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the purpose of the new covenant. This is the final end, right? Confident access to God. The ability right now as you're sitting there to pray and to enter into his presence because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are so many promises that we have through the new covenant, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament is filled with them. And what a glorious thing it is to be a partaker of this new covenant that we have by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage this morning, and we thank you for these promises that we have. And as the author of Hebrews makes clear, these promises can be trusted because they are given by you. You never go back on your word. You never fail to fulfill your promises. You are always true. You're always faithful. You're always just and right. And so in our lives this week, we can bank on these vows that you have made because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Change us by this. Help us to rejoice in all the the benefits that we have and the access we now have to you through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.